0: We are back in Paul's letter to the Romans this morning, and we're in chapter 7, which is right where we left off, and just so that we can get our bearings, right in the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans, he has a list of freedoms, and we're on the third of those freedoms. First, he gave us the declaration that we're set free from our sin, and then we're set free from our guilt, and this morning we see and we'll hear that we are free from the law. Young Christians, young theologians, there are a couple of things that I want you to listen for this morning. What is the one word? It's just one word. What is the one word that best describes how we should think of ourselves, how we should see ourselves? Just a one-word answer to that question. And then, another one-word answer, what is the one way God relates to his people? The one way God gives himself to his people. Listen for those things and see if you can find them as we go along this morning. This is the good news of the gospel that sets us free from the law in Christ Jesus, the Savior. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. O Lord Jesus, the priests of Israel stood before God, dressed gloriously in gospel clothing. We heard of it this morning in our reading from Leviticus. Beautifully dressed by God himself in clothes that depicted the gospel. And we don't have any clothes like those to dress ourselves in. But we have so much better. We have the dressing, the covering that is ours in Jesus, his righteousness, his blood, his beauty, his love. We stand before the Lord our God this morning, dressed in no clothing of our own, and in all of the clothing of Jesus. And now open a door for the word in our hearts and fill our hearts with the preeminence of Christ, the glory of God in Jesus the Son, and allow us to love the glory of God more than we love our sin and fallenness, which are so easy for us to chase after, so routine and comfortable to us, but instead draw our hearts away, wake the sleepy, Settle the distracted, revive the apathetic, and raise the dead all by your word, all by your gospel. Do these things. and We will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? This is a love story which might come as a shock to some of you and possibly even a disappointment because you may have thought that you were going to get a law school lecture here. You may have thought that this passage would escort you deftly through a graduate level course ...at rabbinical school and earn you a law degree. At the first look, this passage seems to say... ...this text is for people who can handle the challenging stuff... ...like us, in other words. This passage is perfect for us... ...but actually it's very simple. This has nothing to do with law school. It's a love story. And we know that our reading of the passage is mistaken because of the way Paul starts. He starts out correcting us. Do you not know, he says. Don't you get it? Put your law books away. Close your notebooks. Put down your twitchy quills. Put your big words back in their scabbards. And I'll tell you a love story, Paul says. It's the story of the great lover and his beloved... There once was a woman married to a man she could never please, not in a thousand lifetimes, and she was widowed and remarried to a lover who was only pleased with her. You follow the plot a wedding, a difficult marriage, a funeral, and a new marriage. It feels like a dream. Don't you know? Don't you get it? Paul writes. I'm talking to those who know the law. And by the way, this does not mean Jews, it means all those who have ever tried to measure up. Don't you get it? Paul says. You're not bound anymore. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband only while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. No longer married. But some never understand this. We had a neighbor lady who had been widowed for 25 years by the time we knew her. You couldn't have a conversation without her invoking the sainted memory of her dead husband. And when she spoke of him, she spoke of him in mythical terms. She had built him up in death to a stature he never occupied in life. She would drop his name as if he were still alive. And all her decisions were made with reference to him. Now it's one thing to miss someone. That's understandable and it's loving. ...but it's another thing to give up on the living that's left to you. I don't believe in ghosts... ...but I do believe that there are people who are haunted by them anyway. And sometimes... ...the living don't know what to do... ...so in desperation they cling to the dead... ...and they join their ranks... Don't you get it, Paul says. To be widowed is surprising. But after the shock of it, you're alive all over again. And in verse 4, Paul jumps from generalities and metaphor to us. In other words, he puts us right inside his working metaphor. Likewise, brothers and sisters, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. You are the widow... With a new life to embark on. Through the death of Christ on the cross. The old self died. The old sin ruled self. The self of the corrupted heart. The guilt loaded self. The self under the law. The self that bucks the law. But likes to pretend to keep it. The self that could never live up to the law, but kills itself trying. The fully disqualified self. And when that self died, our obligation to the law died. I know that's confusing logically, but it isn't anecdotally. I have a friend who was a cadet at the Citadel. And he met a girl, and he fell in love, and he asked her to marry him, and she said, yes. Only one problem. You can't be married in the Corps of Cadets. You are first and always a cadet while enrolled in the Corps. But that problem was easily fixed. He gave up his commission. He left the citadel. He lost college credits in the process. Had to begin parts of his education over. He gave up his officer's commission and scholarship monies. But he got his love. He got his bride. He had to die to his earlier ambitions and plans, his earlier identity. He had to die to an old life to take up a new one. But when he died, he was no longer under the laws of the old institution. And when the body of Christ expired under judgment... Our inseparability to the old judged self ended. We were cut loose from the old self... ...and no longer answerable to the law that judges the old self. And all of this is true only because of the function of the law. Now listen very carefully because some of you still get this wrong. If you believe... That the Old Testament saints were saved because they kept the law. You do not understand the Old Testament or the New. And you certainly can't understand what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. All of this is true only because of the function of the law. The law's job, Paul says, was never to justify us. To declare us ...forgiven and sins remitted and righteous before God. The law's only job was to press upon us the need... ...the desperate need to be justified. The job of justifying us is entirely out of our ability... ...and out of our hands and it can't be achieved through the law. The law's job, Paul says, was never to make us righteous but only to allow us to feel the depth of our unrighteousness. The law's job, Paul says, was never to help us help ourselves into a state of acceptability before God. Its only job was to render us utterly helpless. And helpless is the best place to be. Christianity is a faith for the helpless only. Those who want to help themselves have nothing to do with the gospel, have nothing to do with Christianity. They live on other sources of strength, like Dr. Phil and self-improvement seminars and the self-help section at the bookstore. But the helpless are open to the only way that God gives himself to relate to his people. Not through our merits, not based on our achievements, not based on our names and reputations and resumes, our pedigrees, not by our Impressive intellect or social or moral standing, not by any measure of deserving, God gives Himself to His people in one way only, and that's in love. Electing love. The love that chooses you for no earthly reason. The love that can't be talked out of choosing you for anything. The one thing helpless people need is the one way God relates to his people. Love. It's a perfect match because love is eager to give itself all of itself. And helplessness is eager to be immersed in it and swept away on it. Years ago, I heard the story of a missionary and a Buddhist monk working in the same village in Southeast Asia somewhere. They were both trying to gather converts and practitioners from the same small village populace. And at about the same time, the missionary and the monk both announced plans that they would each build a worship facility. The missionary would build a little church, the monk would build a small temple. So the missionary would buy building supplies, lumber and nails and tools and bring them back to the village, but the monk had nothing. So the missionary made it his custom to give the monk half of everything, half. The church and the temple were built at nearly the same rate. The missionary supplying the materials for both projects, severely hampering the progress of his church and severely advancing the progress of the building of the Buddhist temple. And finally, the last load of lumber was purchased and the church and the temple were finished within a day or two of each other and the monk invited the missionary over to the temple for a visit. And the missionary walked in and the monk was standing in the middle of the temple waiting for him. And the monk said, I'm ready. And the missionary said, I'm sorry. Please tell me about your Jesus now. The missionary was a little shocked. I I don't understand, he said. So the monk explained. You've supplied me in my labors against you. My efforts in opposing you. You loved me to your own loss. You saw to the building of a temple for a rival worship that you don't agree to or believe in in any way. You invested yourself in the building of that rival temple all the way to the completion of it. And I have never been loved like that. Please tell me of Jesus, the source of your love. And the monk was converted. And his first act of faith was to tear down the temple he had built. What a match helplessness and love make. And that's where the love of God in Christ finds you, in helplessness. What is the shape of love that reaches across the infinite expanse of our need? The love that gives all and pays all to overcome our helplessness. It comes in the shape of an infant born with the whole law written into his flesh. It comes in the shape of a purging, forgiving cross. It comes in the shape of a tomb forced to give up its occupant. It comes in the shape of a triumphant Savior rising into heaven on the clouds, opening the gates that were barred to sinners, promising that we would come in singing after Him. And the law did none of that for you. The law did not come near to you in flesh. The law did not suffer your cross and your tomb or rise into heaven to open the way for you to follow. The law just showed you you're stuck and you're dead. But love, that's a different story. Love finds you where you're stuck and love raises you Where you are dead. And that's why this is not a law school lecture. This is a love story for the helpless. I would imagine that some of you who are planning to work your way out of your own predicament. So that you can feel good about yourself. Proud of yourself. I would suspect that you're good and mad by now. But look, there's always the next episode of Dr. Phil getting ready to air somewhere. You could always tune in and see what he says. I would suspect there are others who resent being called to see yourselves as helpless. Maybe there's a good bit of irritation rumbling through you right now, but maybe some resignation too. Maybe you're willing to say, It's time for me to see myself as I really am and name myself as I really am. But then there are those of you who wake up every morning and you see your helplessness every time you look in the mirror and you feel your helplessness every time you face your heart in prayer. And this is good news. Best news there ever was. The gospel is a love story, and the love story is this. Jesus has never been satisfied with the limits of the law for you. He has always, always wanted more for you, and the Father has insisted on more for you. The law is good, according to verse 5, for revealing our flesh... When we talk of our flesh, we're talking of the nature, that part of us that wants to be rid of God because we're convinced that we can do his job better than he can. We're fully convinced we can judge and will better than God himself. And yet he's still sovereign and his law is still over us. So our flesh reacts in the only way it knows how. It tries to know the law without knowing the heart of God behind it. Or our flesh tries to get around the law altogether. That doesn't apply to me. Our flesh ignores the law. Or we try to look as if we're keeping it while we gut it. Claiming to keep it while we cut these enormous shortcuts right through the heart of it. I like the way one commentator put it. He said the law exposes the flesh and the flesh exploits The law. You see the dynamic? And the result of it is always deadly fruit, according to Paul. Like the bright red berries that grow in the bushes in the backyard. And our children pick them when they're small. And they bring the sprigs to us and ask, can we eat these? And we snatch them out of their little fingers and grind them into the lawn and say, no. It'll make you terribly sick. Jesus has never been happy with the effect of the law in you. He has more in mind for you. So he enacted the death that sets us free from the law. So that in verse 4, you may belong to another. You can't remain married to the old self in the law. You're to belong to him, verse 4 says. So he died to set you free. And at the very end of the verse we're told he died in order for you to bear fruit. He rose in order for you to bear fruit. The most fruitful one of all is bearing fruit for God now in you. In Jesus we are widowed and remarried. That's what we say every week in the confession of sin. I am widowed. The old self has died, and in the assurance of pardon, we are remarried. In Jesus, we're happily widowed. In Jesus, we're ecstatically remarried. But if there is no law keeping watch over us, like a nagging spouse, I trust that metaphor isn't too distant for you to understand, or a hall monitor, Or a lifeguard with a whistle clenched in its teeth. Waiting to ruin your fun. If there's no law standing over us. Then what is there to keep us from sin? Well let's say it in Paul's words. Do you not know? Do you still not get it? What keeps us from sin is love. If the law could make you righteous then the coming of Christ was redundant or useless. But since Christ came in flesh with a cross and a resurrection, then the law falls short. And I'll say it in personal terms. The law has never pulled from me the fruit of God's goodness and glory, but the love of Jesus has. we got a bunch of games for Christmas. It was exciting to open them all up and to sort of line them out under the tree and to look at them and talk about them. And we said to each other, oh, this would be great. This would be fun. We can play all these games together. We don't play enough games. We're going to play more games. And then the terrible realization set in. We don't know how to play any of these games. And there's an even more horrifying realization that settled over me I have to learn how to play all these games. Nobody else is going to do it. It always falls to me. And then in my ill-mannered, short-tempered way, I have to sit everybody else down around the table and teach them to play the game. It's a lot of fun for everybody, you can imagine. (laughs) The process is terribly laborious at first. You get the game out, you you open the board, you set out the extra pieces. If you have little kids, you say, No, ah, don't touch anything. Don't touch a thing. And you set it all up and you read through the instructions once, maybe twice or more, depending on the game, depending on your ability. You make a couple of demonstrative moves. Others take these sort of turns at the game very slowly and cautiously... Questions are raised. The rule book is consulted again. Arguments break out. And then there's this magic moment. It just all comes together. And you see the game for what it is. And you put the rule book back in the box and all the extra pieces. And the lid goes back on it. And it slides under a chair at the table. And you simply play. No more of the jagged mechanical movements through the game. Now you simply play. Held fast and secure by the order of the game. But at the same time, cut loose and free floating through the spontaneity of a thousand different variations. Any of which could arise at the very next turn. The law tries to wring fruit out of us, but the right fruit never comes. And Paul says, here's the good news, people of God. Love makes fruitfulness its play. Love makes the pleasures of God, the glory of God, righteousness, godlikeness. It makes all of those its play. That's the way Paul talks about it. And I know that makes us uncomfortable because it's not buttoned down enough. It's not starchy enough. But Paul says it that way. Paul says in verse 6, You don't serve. You don't live by the rule book anymore. You don't live by the written code. Now you move in the new way of the Spirit. Christ's Spirit. His heart and His mind moving through you. Paul is saying, love plays in the Gospel. And we don't mean by that play in the sense of not taking it seriously or being glib or cheap or crass about it. What we mean is, Love plays in the gospel in the sense that it is interested in, it is filled with enjoyment over, it desires the gospel more than everything else. Like a virtuoso plays a masterpiece, or an athlete plays a game, or a hobbyist spends hours building proficiency at a pastime because it brings some satisfaction that is beyond Words. Love plays in the gospel, Paul says. The opposite of law, then, isn't nothing. The opposite of law is love. Paul is saying Christians come away from the law and learn the play of love. Learn the ordered movements, but the joyful freedom of love. And we want to object immediately. That's a little vague, isn't it? Isn't that just a little open-ended? Doesn't that leave me to interpret love however I want? No, it does not. Paul didn't leave you to interpret the law however you want to. He's not about to leave you to interpret love in your way either. Love is very profound And strikingly simple. And here's how you understand it. Whenever you're seeking your own self-interest, that is the law at work in you. Paul says it in verse 5. Under the law, you are alive in your sinful passions. Whenever you're seeking your self-interest, you're moving in the law. Because the law always seeks to compensate itself to the greatest extent possible. And the law is always seeking to penalize everyone else to the greatest extent possible. Paul says, the law arouses the gluttony of the self. But love is different. Love always seeks the interest of another. It's all there in the short list that Paul gives us in verses 4-6. through Love overcomes. Love raises the dead. Love bears fruit. Longs to please, delight in another. Love releases from captivity. Love dies for the glory of God. The glory of God is just too good for me to be infatuated and satisfied with my own comfortable brokenness anymore. I'm willing to die to everything else just to participate and play in God's glory. So for Paul, love looks like worship and ministry and fellowship and shared sanctification, shared profession of faith and encouragement. And none of those things comes through a rule book. They are all the truest forms of play. Skeptics, Christianity says to you that you don't have to go to law school. You don't have to figure out how to represent yourself or try your own case, offering up your own defense before God. Christianity says you simply have to admit that you've lost your case before the court is even called to order. Christianity says there is only one plea to be offered up by people like us, And it's this, Jesus, love me anyway. I am helpless. Love me in my helplessness. And this passage says he won't turn you away. He'll take you the way the lover takes the beloved. It's been his intention to do this from the start. I'm helpless, Jesus. Love me in my helplessness. When my mother was a child, she would spend six weeks each summer with her grandparents just outside of Flint, Michigan. And during those six weeks, every Sunday after church, my great-grandmother would throw a big party. There was an enormous lunch. The table was set with roasts and casseroles. There was another table filled with cakes and all the uncles and aunts. And the cousins and relatives would come over and stay well into the evening and they'd talk and laugh and sing and play. And after my mother's eighth summer of life, the visit with her grandparents came to its natural end and she went back home to be with her parents. And one week, not long after her return, she fell sick. And that Sunday, she sat in her father's lap and he was rocking her in the big rocking chair in the front room. And she asked her father, sad and feeling as though she was missing out, feeling as though she was being left out, she said, Daddy, do you think Grandma is having her party without me her father stopped rocking and he looked at her and said in words much like Paul's sweetheart don't you know don't you know she only throws those parties when you're there having you with her is the party for your grandmother and that is the gospel There is no party for the Father and the Son and the Spirit like the one they throw for you. There is no party for the Father and the Son and the Spirit like the party of having you with them. And the law has no party to throw. And love can't not throw them. Gospel is not the story of people who have it all together, who go to law school and gain mastery of the law. This is a different story. And it makes sense only to the helpless. This is a love story for those who want to learn the play of love. Those who have ears to hear, hear. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, we would love to master the law and approve of ourselves. We would love to be impressed with ourselves. And you faithfully give to us the law to show us who we truly are. And to drive us in helplessness. To need Christ Jesus and to find in him our full relief. Now, make us alive and playful in that love. In all the best theological senses of it. In the deepest senses of it. Teach us the play of love. Help us to believe your word more than anything else because we would love to believe our own hearts, but they would endlessly lead us astray. So instead, remind us again and again that you speak to us truth and peace and always the words of the great lover to the beloved and pull us away from all of our desires to measure up. And finally, in Christ... We will have our peace and rest. We ask all of this in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit.